We are continuing our series as a church through the books, right? The books. And of course, I remind you, as we have before, that uh, the, word, the, the, the word Bible, we use the word Bible. Bible means books because the Bible, we think of the Bible as a book, but it's really, it's really two collections of books, right? The first collection is called the Hebrew Scriptures. Many of us that may have been around the block have called it the Old Testament, but or the New Testament, but the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures are the two collections of books that we've bound together in one giant binding and called them the Bible or the books. And the Hebrew Scriptures are the story of a nation. It's their story, their journey, uh, their foundation, their, where it all started, their laws, their kings, their history, and adventures. And then you have the Christian Scriptures, the story of Jesus and the founding of the early church and the correspondence letters between uh, those early churches and the founders, the, the, the apostles. So anyhow, you have these two collections of books bound together in the books or the Bible. And we're taking a narrative journey through them. And we've made our way this year through the uh, Moses years. And of course, the, uh, the freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt into the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years, the wander years. They came into up to the uh, promised land that God had promised their ancestors hundreds of years earlier and then was bringing them back finally after being in slavery in Egypt for so long. Moses dies. Joshua, who was uh, his protege and also a military leader, he takes charge because you're going to need that kind of leadership in the land of Canaan because it's going to be a military deal. And so we left off there. And then last week, if you were with us, we, we really look over, saw the whole story of the book of Joshua. How Joshua stepped up and God brought them into the land of Canaan. How they had to fight battles and wars and uh, settle down in this place and establish themselves as a nation. And um, it is a, it's a st tough stuff. And I, I tentatively stepped into this last hour. But I just want to remind you that you know, th these are very different times in the world. Times, uh, sometimes as Western people in our modern sensibilities, you read about ancient wars and conquests and things that happened, and we look at it through a lens of, of being in a first, you know, first world nation, and we're so blessed, and we've known such peace and prosperity. War is something that happens elsewhere. Maybe some of our kids go face it here and there. We may agree or not agree, but, but that's just the way the world was. And, and so when you read the scriptures, and these, especially the Hebrew story written by the the, of course, the victors in, in these stories. And as you read these things all these years later, you know, it's, it's important to remember the times that they were in and the, the way the world was, always at battle, always at war, uh, settling. And, and just context helps so much when reading. And we're going to have a series, by the way, someday. Where we're going to talk about all the difficult parts, all those difficult things that people wrestle with in the Scriptures. People who don't believe, who find fault with hard things in the Scriptures. Or people who have faith, who struggle with why is this happen, or why did that happen, or what's this about? We're going to do all those things one day, but that's not the point of this series. This series has kind of been a narrative journey through the books, and it's going to take us a while. And then we'll tackle some, uh, a series of hard things down the road a little ways here. And, and why did this go on, and why did this happen, and why did God allow this, and so on and so forth. But anyhow, right now the Israelites are moving into this promised land that they were out of. Their ancestors were in hundreds of years earlier. They're back from slavery. It's going to be war. It's going to be uh, them defending themselves from attacks. It's going to be them attacking. It's going to be conquest. It's going to be defense. It's going to be warfare of all sorts. And you should read the book of Joshua. We're not really telling the war stories. But if you like them, they're in there. And if that's your, your, your kind of thing. But 
we're, we, we kind of finished Joshua last week, but we skipped a story. We skipped a few stories for sake of time. I want to go back into the Israelites entering Canaan to tell one story that we rushed past as we got to the end of Joshua's life. And it goes back to the very beginning. They were getting ready to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And it says in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1, Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove, and he instructed them, Scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. I'm going to pause on it here for a minute and talk to you. Um, so Joshua is sending spies in to check out the land. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you might be like, is that really a good idea? Because you remember what happened last time, like 40 years earlier when their parents sent spies into the land to check it out? Remember that story? Um, yeah, 12 guys, one from each tribe went in and only Joshua and Caleb came back and said, God's got this, let's go. And the other 10 were like, it's a terrible idea, we can't survive. And the whole nation of of Israel decided to not trust God, and they ended up wandering for 40 more years in that wilderness until that generation died off, and their kids grew up and were ready to walk in with a, with a better mindset. Their, the parents had a victim mindset ever since they were, were set free from their entire lives before, and now their kids grew up and said, we're ready to go in and take care of business and trust God. So, so Joshua was part of the last generation that mostly didn't believe they could go do it, and Joshua is now sending in spies, and you're like, is that a good idea? Because the last group discouraged everybody. But that was not the spies' fault only. That was the whole, everyone's fault last time. This group was ready to go in. This generation was ready to step into the promised land. And Joshua tells um, these, you know, he, he probably handpicks the right kind of people this time, because he remembers last time. And, and they're going to check it out and, and give them the lay of the land, especially Jericho, the first big city they would come to. Cities would often be built with walls around them. It was a smart idea because walls, and not all walls were created equal. Like some of us, when we think about walled cities, you think about watching Lord of the Rings where every fortress city is massive and beautiful and insurmountable. Sometimes the walls were a lot more primitive than that. But any kind of wall, any kind of wall was a deterrent from someone just marching right on in and just, you know, imposing the will. So it was a defense mechanism. And Jericho was a strong city with a strong wall. It was the first big obstacle they would encounter on their way into the land of Canaan. So Joshua sends spies around the area to check it out. And it says in the next part of the verse that the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Ah, I see, uh, away from home, no one knows what's going on. Hey, what happens in Jericho stays in Jericho, right? They're at the prostitute's house. That's what's going on here. But that's not exactly what's being painted here. Because you have to understand that, that obviously as you read the story and understand context that this woman Rahab, who was a prostitute, had a house, which was an interesting uh, under, an understanding. That was a place where you could rent rooms or stay. Probably, probably the best thing culturally we can grab a hold to if you're watching Old Western, people go there and they'd have a place, a saloon, they'd serve food and drinks and have rooms to rent upstairs and also some showgirls running around and all that kind of stuff. You know, multifaceted place. It, it wasn't that. It, was, it wasn't the Wild West in the United States. But just picture the same concept in its own way. This woman is a, is, is a prostitute. And by the way, before, let's talk about her for a minute. Um, 
boy, this is a time in history when women just didn't have rights and respect that we, we appreciate. That they, they find, we, we're making that right in recent centuries or recent decades, right? And yet, it wasn't that way in, in time, in times past. Not just in Jericho, but anywhere. We don't know Jericho's laws. They're not, they're not preserved for us. But we know the way the world wasn't even Israel. That women just were, they didn't own property usually. They could. In this case, you see she does. They, they didn't usually have, have you know, say-so in government. They didn't you oftentimes have, you know, they were, there, there was just, no one voted. There was no democracy. But even in our own nation's history, that was a problem at one time. And women, back in those days, the best thing that could happen to, for so many girls is to get married. Have someone take care of you. And if you were considered, you know, you know, used or damaged goods in some cultures, you would never be even looked at as a potential wife. And if your husband died or left, divorced you, or something happened along the way to you or around you, you could just be a beggar or live with your parents and take care of them and, and, or, or in some cases, you know, prostitution or other things would happen. And it was just the way the world was. And it's, it's, we have those problems today in culture. We don't know if Rahab was a woman who, you know, lost someone and didn't have better prospects. We don't know if she was someone who, since she was a young girl, was just morally like, whatever, make some money off of my body. We don't know if that was her story. We don't know if it was just what choices were put upon her or what choices were her own or a little bit of both. We know that prostitution exists to this day in places and oftentimes in certain spots it's kind of the ugly underbelly, maybe illegal, but it happens and people who, who know just kind of keep it in its own zone. And in some ways, it's, it's, it's allowed and it's permitted and it's accepted in culture. But even when it's accepted in culture, no one's like, yeah, that's the best part of our city right there, right? Like, no wives are like, I hope my husband's going there. No, 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 one's, like, no, no men, unless they're secret, they have a secret life, are sitting there saying, this is commendable. It's just that part of a culture that's there. And Rahab is a prostitute who has a house. And she's obviously business savvy because she doesn't just have, she's not just using her body, she is running an establishment with rooms for rent and places and food. We see it later, later a reference to having a lot of food supply there. Um, she obviously had, a, she, was, she was savvy with making a, a living for herself, including this less desirable area that was well used by men, I'm sure, all the time. Probably men in power. Well, anyhow, picture this place, and these guys come to her house because it's a good place to stay. It's a good place to sleep. A good place to rent a room. The kind of place where you go because secrets are kept there. The kind of place where you can go there and there's not, you know, they're not going to necessarily keep record, you know, of everything. You can just go there and stay and get out of town afterwards, right? It's a very smart place for them to lodge. And so they end up at this house for the night. Well, the next verse tells us that someone told the king of Jericho, hey, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. So they knew right where they were, probably because either they saw them and saw them go there, or they just knew that's where you would go to stay when you're in town. I don't know. But they sent word to Rahab's house and said, you send those guys out. And she's in a tough spot now. What is she supposed to do? 
Do you really want to be on the wrong side of the king? Do you really want to be on the wrong side of the political structure, especially when that's your calling? You might facilitate men in power in that kind of a place, for all you know. But here's the bottom line. You certainly don't want to get on their, on their bad side where they can get all pious conveniently and condemn you because of who you are. She's always probably living a very tight situation of providing for herself and maybe doing well, but in the other sense, being on a razor's edge of, of being in trouble. I mean, just her whole, her whole life had to be a difficult tightrope to walk. And now the king is saying, send those guys that are in your house out. Her best bet is don't make anyone mad in power. Out they come. Verse 4 says, Rahab had hidden the two men. But she replied, uh, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. Smart, you know. She's like, look, when we took their credit card information and scanned it, you know, we didn't ask them to fill out an application with their job title. They didn't say, oh, yeah, we're spies. I didn't know. They were just people passing by. All sorts of folks come here. I didn't know they were spies. She said, they left town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. Uh, if you hurry, you could probably catch up with them. They went that way, right? She's smart. But actually, verse 6 says, actually she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. That's very interesting. She has product on her roof. She hides them underneath it, and she, she lies. Why would she do that? Why would you lie to the powers that be knowing that your life is, it could be, if this comes back on her, if they find the spies, you know what they're going to do to the spies, don't you? If they find the spies, they're going to, they're going to kill the spies. If they find that she harbored the spies, you know what they're going to do to her, right? Why is she taking this chance? She's hiding them. Verse number seven, so the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. And now we find out what she's thinking in verse 8. It says, Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk with them. And look what she says to them. She says, I know the Lord has given you this land. And can we just quickly acknowledge that's amazing? She says, the Lord. You don't understand what a big statement that is. She says, the Lord. Not, I hear that your deity or one of your gods. She says, the Lord. You don't, you, you can't, it's so easy for us in America who just, we talk that way in our Christianized culture, whether you're religious or not. That is, we don't bet an eye at that. But that's an amazing statement when she makes it. People with all sorts of idolatry, the, uh, the you know, the polytheistic culture, the idols people worshiped, all the, the degradation, Jericho and the land of Canaan was a vile society. They had a lot of very terrible forms of religion and idolatry child sacrifices. It was the kind of place that, that as Israel's coming into it, the people were so weakened morally by their bad uh, choices that Israel, I mean, the, the record goes that the land was ready to vomit out the inhabitants because they were so messed up. So she's not in a moral, godly place. Whatever religions are around her. But she says, the Lord. What she's saying is, and, 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 to make you understand how big that is, go back four or five hundred years earlier to the patriarchs. Before that, 600 years ago. Go back to the days of, of um, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And what do you find Jacob doing? 
Jacob would refer to God not as the Lord or his Lord. He would say to his dad, oh yeah, your God wants me to do this, or your God that. I mean, they, they struggle with their own acceptance of God. And here's this woman over here, this prostitute in Jericho saying, the Lord. I know the Lord. The, in other words, the God who rules all things. He's given you this land. That's an amazing statement. And if you, if you flip past it, you won't notice something, something big there. She says, we're all afraid of you. Everyone in this land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord has made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. Imagine that, that made headlines, right? Not every, I mean, it was a long ways away, 40 years ago. But when, someone, when the Red Sea gets parted and the Egyptian army gets wiped out, that kind of makes, makes that news travels. Any, anyone wants to know that story, it's going to filter through the ranks. She says, we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. We skipped that story a few weeks ago because we didn't look at the military battles. But ultimately, it was when Israel was in the wander years and these two nations attacked them brutally and they defended themselves. It was an amazing victory. They won and they ended up just taking over their cities after that. In fact, they would keep those cities and after they finished with Canaan, some of the tribes of Israel would go back and live in those cities afterwards. And so she says, we've seen, you're unstoppable. I mean, God is with you. And she says in verse 11, no wonder our hearts melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. Here it is. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. That's a statement. Again, in a polytheistic culture of idolatry, worshiping the sun, moon, or stars, or trees, or animals, or things you make with your hands and say, this is my God that I made with my hands. How cool, what a great God that is, you know? She's like, you worship, and she acknowledges monotheism. There is a God who is over everything. There is a God who makes all things. He is the God of all. He is the maker. He makes the things that people worship. That's what Joshua said at the end of his life later on. You know, this one true God maker of all is the God that you serve. We're all over the place over here, but you acknowledge his existence and you serve him. He's the Lord, and I acknowledge that, that he is God of heaven above and earth below. He is the maker of all things. It's such a big statement. There's no Christian. There's no, Jesus has not showed up in the scene yet. Um, the prophets pointed ahead to him, and people semi-understood semi his coming. But we, what, we, what we say about the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior today, in those days, this is as strong a statement of faith as you're going to find. You're not going to find a stronger statement of faith anywhere. She says there is a God who made all things, who is, and he's your God, and you understand that we are not following or believing on him or worshiping him, but, but I do. And I acknowledge him. It's such an, a powerful faith statement in its context and in its time. Well, from here, Rahab is going to proceed to make the deal of her lifetime. She's going to make the business deal of her lifetime. Now, I think Rahab was a fairly savvy businesswoman. That's my opinion. Because she didn't just, you know, find a way to make a little survival off of prostitution. She had a house in the nice spot we're going to see here. She had probably a diner, drinks, food, lodging, prostitute. She had a whole thing going on. She's a businesswoman. Not that we're, com not that we're commending what she did, her choices and her life, and whatever led up to that. But she's obviously a savvy businesswoman, and she's about to make the best business decision of her lifetime right here. 
She says to the spies, now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. I helped you before I made a deal with you. I helped you on good faith. Now, now be kind to us. Promise me by your God, by the Lord, that you'll be kind to me. And again, she already helped them, but she, they were still in the city. She could have probably made things challenging for them still. So she strikes up a deal. She says in verse, the next verse, give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all their families. So she's, you know, doesn't seem to have a, a spouse or kids of her own, but she has a dad, a mom, siblings, and they have families. She has promised me you'll spare us. That's the deal I want with you. Because I know what's coming. I know how messed up things are. I know how weakened we are through our own national choices, and we're a hot mess over here. And I know you're coming in and we're done for. So help me spare my family. The spies answered her in verse 14. They said, we offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then, since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. Now again, all city walls are not created equal. This is a very strong city. And she has a spot where her house is built into the town wall. She has a window outside of view of the outside area, outside the walls of the city. And she lets them out the window by a rope so they can escape. And so it's a very interesting dynamic to picture there. Escape to the hill country, she told them. Hide there for three days from the men searching for you. Then when they have returned, you can go on your way. Before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath that we have taken only if you follow these instructions. Here's the deal, they said. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. Such an interesting thing. It was a scarlet rope. So many different analogies you could take in a spiritual sense and also in a cultural sense from her past and who she was. But just, it's interesting. She says, leave this scarlet rope hanging out of your window that you let us down through when we come back. They said, and all of your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all of your relatives must be here inside this house. If they go out into the street and are killed, it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on the people inside of this house, we accept responsibility for their death. In other words, what they said is, look, when we come to the city, you know, conflict happens, people fight, people get hurt, people die. When we come into the city, you are risking your own life to be on the streets, and that is not our fault. But if you go into this house and you'll stay inside of here, we are accountable to keep this house safe. And that's our deal. You get in the house. And it was a big enough house for all her family. Apparently, it was a place where they fed and housed people out of town. Just bring them all in the house and you just stay there. And when we come by, we guarantee your safety. But if you're in the streets, what happens there is not on us. Then they said, if you betray us, however, we're not bound by this oath in any way. I accept your terms, she replied. She made the deal of a life. She sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. The spies went out up into the hill country, stayed there for three days. The men who were chasing them searched everywhere along the road, but they finally returned without success. Then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that happened to them. The Lord has given us the whole land, they said. For all the people in the land are terrified of us. In other words, God's fear is spreading before we even show up. 
Now, the next chapters we're going to skip because we looked at them last week. We saw them last week. It was the story where they crossed the Jordan River, the miracle that takes place there. They come into the land. We kind of didn't spend time in the war stories. You can read those for yourself. And then we kind of went all the way to the end. But we did skip a story where Joshua has an encounter with a spiritual, like an angelic being. And he's kind of terrified. It's at nighttime and they're getting ready to come to Jericho. And he said, are you with us or against us? And he said, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm here to lead you. I'm the captain. What are you talking about? You're with me. And, uh, and then the, this, this spiritual being says to Joshua, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And that's a powerful statement in itself. Because those are the exact same words that 40 years earlier God said to Moses at the burning bush. Moses, take off your shoes. It's just one more time that God was saying to Joshua, I'm with you like I was with Moses. And they have this encounter. We're going to skip that. Well, they get to Jericho. And then what happens at Jericho is interesting. They end up getting to the city and they wander. They have this really weird form of attack. It makes no sense. It's not the best. I wouldn't write a, a rules of war book this way. But they march around the whole city, the whole nation that arrives, all the warriors, march around the city once, one day, blowing ram's horns and being quiet. The next day, and then they go back to camp. Then they do it again. And again, for six straight days. And then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times, blowing the ram's horns. In that one spot, they all stop and they shout. And when they do, something miraculous happens. It says that, well, we, we learned the song in kids' program. I don't know, nothing like teaching kids songs about con- conquistadors and conquering other cities. But they, the, song, the story goes that the walls came tumbling down. And um, in fact, we see it in the verse here. Um, it says, when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed. And the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. Now you say, how does that work? Like, how does that, I don't know. How does the Red Sea get parted? How does the Jordan River get parted, right? It's all, look, we, how does Egypt get plagued over and over again? How does, you know, how does, it, how do they get freed from slavery? It's all been God. They never put God in a box. And he, he can do anything he wants to do through any supernatural means he wants to do them. And, and it's an amazing, this is just one of those things. And I don't know, I mean, I pictured as a boy, all the walls came tumbling, and the walls came tumbling down all together, or whatever. But I, I, I imagine maybe, maybe just part of the walls collapsed. I mean, Rahab's house seemed to be intact. So maybe, maybe on one side or a couple sides, some walls come crumbling, and there's an opening for them to charge into the city. I don't know. I wasn't there. Some of us are a little older than me, but I don't think you were there either. But they got in the city. Walls crumbled, and they charged in and took it over. Verse 22 says, Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, Keep your promise. Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with all her family. I want to point this out. Not very often you'll hear your leader, your spiritual leader, say to you, Go to the prostitute's house. Normally not a very good idea, but this was different. They're going to to bring her out along with her family. The men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her, and they moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. This is the changed, future, life-changing moment that Rahab encounters right here. She went from being a prostitute in a city that was pretty vile, in in a lifestyle that was precarious, I'm sure bad things happened there. I'm sure jealousy, I'm sure assault accusations. 
You're not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not on the prestigious part of town. Who knows how, how secure she felt. She made the best of it. She was a businesswoman. But who knows the kind of life and what pushed her into that life? Was it a personal choice freely or did life make it hard and she chose it more carefully? How big was her empire or franchise and did she feel safe in what she did? But all that's gone. And now she's part of a group of people that are filling the land. And she's going to live in the land. But she's no longer Rahab the prostitute. And she's no longer, and she's not a slave. She's not brought into slavery or servanthood. She's free. She marries. We're going to see she marries and settles down. Her life is radically transformed. The, the smartest choice of her life. And here's what I want to, but along the way what she did, what she said, she said, you know what? The Lord, the Lord, is God of all. He's Lord of all. So on the screen, I, here it is already. Uh, one choice of faith overcame a lifetime of bad choices. One choice of faith overcame a lifetime of bad choices. Isn't that interesting? That this woman in this moment, says along the way, and whatever brought her to where she was and who she was at the time, one day says, I see God's come is doing something here. I see there's a God of all the world who made everything, and I believe that. I see him working. And whatever has been in my past, I am going to be a part of that. I believe that. I believe in him. And she made a choice of faith. And it changed everything. Everything. It overcame a lifetime of bad choices. We're going to talk about that just a little bit more, but I want to, the story's not over yet. The story's not over. It's over in a sense. But I want to fast forward less than 1,500 years later at this point. I didn't measure the, I didn't look at the calendar. But sometime later, we fast forward to a space where Jesus is going to walk the earth the birth of the Messiah. And when you read the Christian scriptures, the Christian scriptures begin with four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of those accounts tell the, the, um, the genealogies of Jesus, okay? And one of those is in the book of Matthew. And Matthew 1, 1 says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Let's hold it here for a second. Um, so this is a genealogical record of Jesus' life. His ancestry back for a couple thousand years or so. The life of Jesus' ancestral history. And we're going to read this together in just a moment here. And as we read these ancestral records, you're going to notice something. And if, if, if you've ever read them before, it goes all the way back to like Adam. It's really a long list. What's crazy is it's always the men mentioned you know, this man, well, you say, this man begat so-and-so, or this man was the father of so-and-so, this person fathered this guy who fathered this guy, or this guy was the son of this man who was the son of this guy. Always the guys. Girls, come on now. How fair is that, right? Like, what do the guys do in the story to have a, have a child and give birth? You know, they get their names recognized because they, they did all the hard work, didn't they, the men? I mean, let's, let's mention them here. Forget moms. So anyhow, it's a list of all the men and their sons and their sons, and that, that, that's apparently noteworthy. And in, in, in many cases, you never see a single woman mentioned unless he was famous in some way. And in Jesus' genealogies, four women are mentioned in the whole list of, because it just wasn't something that was 
done. It's just the culture, the way the world was back then. But what's crazy, in verse 5 it says, Salmon, that guy was a fishy, he was a fishy guy. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, one of the four women mentioned in the genealogical records of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, is Rahab. Now, of, of uh, all the, the, the many generations spending back a couple thousand or so years, can't we find a better mom to mention, a better person whose life was more commendable and highly rated in your, in your past stories? And then it says, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. She was a foreigner in her own sense, and that's a tough story in itself that we'll get to another day. It's the most interesting things, and we've discussed it before, the, the, the four women that are brought up in the genealogies of Jesus, none of them would be the kind of people you'd say, let's showcase them. Most of us wouldn't. And Jesus is like, yeah, let's do them. Because he had a whole different viewpoint about what makes life count and special, what makes people matter. Not the religious trappings and the piety that makes us feel better then. He says, I like to redeem and make a difference in the world of people that get overlooked and are rough. And so Rahab is mentioned in the list of the genealogies of the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Isn't that crazy? I mean, seriously. And then it goes on. It says, uh, Jesse was the father of King David, which means that Rahab was the great-grandma of King David, the most epic, famous king of Israel. Like, King David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know the Psalms. I mean, King David, his great-grandma, Rahab, the prostitute. Mentioned right in Jesus' Jesus's record. Why? Well, there's a whole lot of reasons why. We can spend a whole sermon about who Jesus includes and what Jesus came to do. And it's not what a bunch of people who use religion to control and manipulate and feel better than often paint it to be. He came to redeem and to save and to love and to make the ground very level at the cross. But that's another story. What I want you to see today is this as we read her story. I want you to tell you that story because I want you to understand. I, want to let the, I don't even want to apply it that much. I don't even want to try and give you all the applications. I want to let the Holy Spirit do his own work today. Sometimes I like to sit here and say, here's three takeaways, and we'll give you a couple things in a minute here. But I just want to keep it simple because sometimes you just need God to take a truth and let it ring true to you. Every week we do that. Every week. I've, I was here last night. I walked down here. Made sure the baptistry heater was on for today. It wasn't actually somehow, and that was crazy. So I turned it back on at midnight. And I just spent a little time praying in here. And um, I was just thinking about all the times that God did something in someone's heart on a Sunday morning through a sermon. And the thing that God did in their hearts wasn't even something that I was trying to talk about. They just heard something, God said something different to them. So I don't know what God's going to say to you in a story like this. But I just want to point out before we're done that God is not bound by your past. He's calling you to your future. And I don't know who needs to hear that today, but if someone needs to hear that today, God is not bound by your past. I know people all my life. I've known this a long time now. And I've seen people who their past is a set of shackles to them. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a brick wall they can't get past. Maybe something was done to them and they say, oh, I can't overcome what was done to me. Or maybe something that they did, I can't overcome what was done by me. I have some things I regret. I have some shame in my past. I am done for but listen, God's not bound by your past. It's the past. That's why it's called the past. It's behind you now. 
The thing that you need to understand about God is he's always forward-looking. I think the enemy likes to point back to things that we can't change or fix, but God looks ahead. He operates through conviction about things that can be changed and not about things that can't be fixed anymore. And God is not bound by your past. Look, your future, no matter where you've been or what you've done or what you've been around or exposed to or what's happened to you, today and beyond is a clean slate. Today and beyond is a blank canvas. And we all have to decide in our lives if we're going to let our past identify us, we're going to march into a future in our blank canvas. And, that's what, and God's not bound by the past. So don't, let, don't, let you, don't bind yourself to things of who you used to be or what you used to do that you regret. And don't let anyone else do that to you either because people are very good at coming along and using labels and shame, and, and, and putting a lid on you and saying, let me make this clear. I don't want to misstate anything here. There are definitely things in our life that we can do that can close certain doors for us. We just understand that, right? There are some things I can do in life that will close certain doors. That's just how it goes. But here's the good news about that. Whatever doors get closed because of the past, they're not the only doors. They're not the only doors. God knows how to open brand new paths of awesome and amazing opportunity. And he is not saying there's nowhere to go because of your past. He's not bound by that. He's like, I got a brand new future for you from here on out. So wherever you are today, stop letting it, whether it's therapy you need, maybe the the therapy you need is just, just to sit back today and say, God, I'm leaving the past where it belongs, in the past. And God, today, By your grace, I'm stepping into my future. And if that's where you are, by all means, seize it. Because, as we saw earlier, one choice of faith can overcome a lifetime of bad choices. One choice. Whatever was part of Rahab's life until that point was transformed when she made one huge decision. And I don't know what choice of faith you need to make today. It could be to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've never come to faith in Christ, that, yeah, but my my past, I have this and I've always thought this or I didn't think that or this is where I've been, this is who I've been before. That's your past. But one choice of faith can launch your future. Maybe it's time to say, you know what? I believe that God loves me and gave his son to be my savior and paid my sin debt and rose again so I could be restored to him and death's power is broken and I have a relationship with him. That God has done that for me because he wants relationship with me and I accept it. I accept his, his, his sacrifice. I accept his relationship. I accept eternal life. His spirit can move inside and live in you and one day when this life is over, it's just the beginning. God invites you into that but he does not force it on any of us. He simply says it's your choice. It doesn't matter what yesterday or last year or decade or the whole past is about. One choice of faith can change everything. Maybe it's the choice to get baptized. Maybe it's the decision to get in the water with Mateo later. Maybe it's a chance, or not today, but maybe in the next week or two when you can invite some people to come watch. I don't know. But to say, you know what, it's time for me to sit there and demonstrate that Jesus died for my sins and was buried and rose again. And I've, my old life's gone. I've buried it. I've raised a new life, a new creature in him. Maybe it's time to say, I have decided to follow Jesus through baptism. Or maybe it's something completely different. I'm not trying to be God's spirit today. I simply want to encourage you 
that God is not bound by your past. He's calling you to your future. And regardless of where life has brought you so far, one choice of faith can change everything. It can overcome a lifetime of bad choices. I don't believe that, Arlen. Tell that to Rahab. Her whole life was transformed. Now she's the great, 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 whatever, grandmother of Jesus. One choice of faith can overcome a lifetime of bad choices.